Dynasty Podcasts and Music Dealers are proud to present Industry Sessions, a live industry interview series held at the Music Dealers offices in downtown Chicago. My name is Haima Black. I host Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcast.com. For this inaugural event, I interview Gabe McDonough, Vice President and Music Director at Leo Burnett. Here's how that sounds. All right, cool. Thank you guys so much for being here. This is the very first industry sessions event that we are hosting here at the Music Dealers offices here in Chicago. Um, my name is Haima Black. I host Dynasty Podcast. It's the Chicago industry podcast at dynastypodcast.com. Very happy to be here. Very happy to have everyone out here. I'm here tonight with Gabe McDonough, who is the vice president and music director at Leo Burnett. And we're going to be talking about music, advertising, where those two things intersect, and a whole lot more. For anyone who is here in the audience and is going to be tweeting, or for anyone watching on the stream online, the hashtag for tonight's event is Industry Sessions Chai. Again, Industry Sessions C-I-H. If you have a question for Gabe, at the end of the discussion in the room, we're going to have the mic out so that you guys can ask questions. Or for anybody following along on Twitter and YouTube, you can also tweet in questions, again, using the hashtag Industry Sessions Chai. So Industry Sessions, plural. So that's enough from me. I really want to get to talking with Gabe McDonough because very interesting, accomplished, knowledgeable man here. So let's kind of start off with talking about your background. How did you get started in the music space and, you know, doing everything that you do now? Just, uh, you know, probably like everybody who's, you know, watching this at home or, or here, you know, is always a music geek, you know? So I was... I'm a 70s baby, so when I was coming up, I'm from Canada, and I, you know, I kind of got out of comic books and got, like, right into music, and I was just obsessive about it, you know? I would buy, like, um, The Enemy, I would buy Sounds, it's not even a magazine anymore, these import magazines from England, I grew up in Canada, and I would be reading about these, um, these bands and these records that, you know, I couldn't even get. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, I feel like I was reading about Big Star for 10 years before I could even find a Big Star <laughs> record, you know? Um, so I was always just a music geek, you know? And um, then I moved to Chicago and always played in bands and collected records and stuff, lived in England for a little bit, moved to Chicago in 2000, and again, playing in bands. I worked at the Rainbow Club, and I worked at Thrill Jockey Records mm-hmm. and uh, at the Empty Bottle for a little bit, and then got into advertising just because I was getting married and I needed a job with health insurance. My only friend who had a job who had health insurance <laughs> happened to work at DDB, which is another ad agency in town. So I got in there as a print project manager, working on direct mail, and, um, and just kept doing music stuff the whole time so that when the right boss came in, I just walked into his office one day and, well, I called first. I said, can I walk into your office? He said, yeah, sure, come on up. Um, went in and um, was just like, Look, I'm a music guy. All the New York agencies have a music producer. We should have one. Google me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so, you, started. so now you are, you know, vice president and music director at Leo Burnett, which sounds very, you know, it's a fantastic sounding title, set of titles. But what does it mean? What does that entail for a typical day? Or what is your role in that company? And what does it do with music, really? <clears throat> well, really, it, it, you know, Leo Burnett is... It's, I, I went to work there because it's the, you know, the biggest and baddest in town, but it's, that office is, the, I think, is the biggest advertising office in the world. There's like 2,000 people there, and you know the building. It's this massive building on uh, 35 West Wacker. And um, so anything that comes out of there involving music, in theory, I could touch, right? So I was uh, two, or last Friday I was in uh, 
Phoenix, Arizona, helping put on a performance by an artist that was playing at our, our party for the Association of National Advertisers. <clears throat> There's weird stuff like that. I run our artists in residence program where we bring in artists to play at the agency. Um, but the day-to-day -day stuff involves a lot of music licensing. Mm -hmm. um, so helping to be a music supervisor where I say, hey, maybe this song might work here or this song might work on this thing that you're doing. And then I do the, the actual deals around that, all the negotiations. Um, and then original music where we're working with people composing things specifically for the spots. Um, I'll work on that too. And let's break some of that down because I feel like music licensing, I mean, I think everyone in this room probably knows what that means or has an idea. And obviously being here at Music Dealers, that's the bread and butter for so many people involved in this event tonight. But for anyone who doesn't know music licensing, what does it mean? Because it sounds like a very kind of broad, mysterious term almost, you know? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, just so it's not, it is, it, it's, there's a lot of different pieces to that puzzle, but just so you know, it does not, it just requires like some Google searching to figure out what it is. That's how I learned it. Like when I was at Thrill Jockey, I learned about music licensing because um, we were doing a, um, we were doing a How Gelb record that had, I think, 12, 12 to 15 songs, a bunch of them were medleys, and um, Bettina, who runs Thrill Jockey, was, was like, Gabe, there's something called a mechanical license. We need them. Can you go get them? And that was it. And that, this is in 2001, so the internet was not, the internet was still... You can just go on wiki. Yeah, the, like, oh, the internet was still the internet, but it wasn't even as robust back then. But then I just, like, I literally, I just remember Googling, like, music licensing, mechanical license. I learned everything about music licensing. That's where I got my start. So music licensing, it's, it's really when you want to use someone else's intellectual property, their music, for, you know, specifically what we call it, they call it a sync license a lot of the time. So when you want to synchronize someone else's composition and master recording, two separate things, when you want to synchronize those to picture, you have to license the, the rights to that. So um, you have to go to the people who, I was explaining it, this is my kind of boilerplate way that I explain it. So there's, there's publishing and master, and um, the publishing, I use the example of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. So the publishing for Satisfaction would be the melody, and the words, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. That's the, the publishing or the sync, they call it sometimes, even though they call it sync licensing as well, so it's confusing. Publishing, sync, or composition. There's that side of it. Then the other side is the master recording. So what version of Satisfaction do you want to use? Do you want to use the... 1960, is it 63 or 67 version that you always hear on the radio? Or do you want to use the live version from Paris on Love You Live? Or do you want to use Otis Redding's version? Or do you want to use Cat Power's version? All those are different master recordings. So you have to get the rights to this and the rights to this. And then you've got enough where you can put it against picture. And again, because I want to demystify this process for people, when you're acquiring these rights, you're not calling like Mick Jagger on his cell, being like, hey, can we use this? I mean, you're going through publishers, you're going through labels, you know, Well, attorneys, yeah, I mean, like it, it, it depends, right? Because it, it, if, if Mick Jagger happened to control his masters, which, um, I mean, he almost does at this point for, for the, the post-ABCO stuff. Um, yeah, if somebody owns their own publishing, then yeah, you could, probably they would make you call their attorney, but you could. But in general... It's a record label on the master side, and then a publisher, or usually multiple publishers. You know, if there's multiple songwriters, a lot of times they, each one will have a different publishing deal. So you do the deals through the publishers and the record labels. You know, and something I want to bring up up front is, 
you know, what we're talking about is a very different kind of, you know, mindset than 10 or 15 years ago when if your favorite artist's song was in a commercial, they were sellouts, they were hacks, you know, people, you know, their hardcore fans are going to be done with them because they sold their souls and, and fuck them. Like, who wants to listen to them? Now, you know, how has the attitude changed towards music licensing from the artist side? I mean, how has it changed from my side? I mean, I've been to, like, more Fugazi shows than probably anyone listening to this. You know, it's <laughs> nuts. But, um, yeah, there's no... I, it's, there's very little... I, I very rarely get turned down by an artist. For, or, or, you know, that's not true. Artists will sometimes... They may not like the product, or they may not like the, the creative that we're, we're presenting with them, or they may not like the money or whatever. But um, it's very rare that an artist just says, no, I don't do ads anymore. You know, there are still holdouts, Neil Young, Tom Waits, um, Arcade Fire, though they did do that Super Bowl spot and they gave all the money to Haiti Relief. So, yeah. Um, in general, it's, it's, it's kind of a non-issue at this point. And do you think it really is just simply because the industry has, you know, it's been so shifted and it's been so heavily demonetized? Or has the attitude, you know, has, has the quality of ads in these campaigns also become such better quality that artists are kind of now excited about like well maybe I want my music in Breaking Bad or in an awesome Sprint commercial or in something like this. I mean that's a pretty nuanced question I think because Breaking Bad is very different than a Sprint commercial. Sure. You know so you'll get a lot of artists that'll say yeah I'll do TV shows and film but I won't do ads. You know truthfully I think a lot of it is due to the economics of it. You know as soon as Kanye got big enough that he didn't have to do it anymore mm -hmm. you know it was not that Kanye will still do ads, but you see, you see an artist, once they get financially secure, they seem to become a little less concerned about being presentable to advertisers. So right. I think, I, to me, that indicates that the getting into advertising is really, you know, it's, it's, it is influenced by the fact that there isn't income streams happening in other areas. But at the same time, when you have a generation of people who grew up and it was like, a Nike logo on your sweatshirt was fashion, then mm -hmm. how are you going to feel freaky about, you know, connecting with a brand? Uh, and it's radio, too. You know, it's always been hard to get on radio. And so now you have brands that are giving you massive national exposure. And so... And, you know, and I hear a lot of times, like, you know, and I come from radio. I used to work yeah, yeah. at a, a Q101, um, a lot, lot of other radio experience behind that, but I hear all the time now that, like, you know, advertising, TV, movies, these are the new radio. Like, if you get your song, I mean, I think a great example is um, MIA for that Pineapple Express ad. Yeah. That seemed like it just broke her through. Oh, yeah, totally. And that was the radio for her. Yeah. You know? Well, you, and, and too, you see it all the time. It was, and, and how long had Paper Planes been out at that point? Six months, nine months? Yeah. It's been out a while, right? But it's, it's, it can push, it, it can't, in my experience, it can't just create an artist out of thin air. You know, like, MIA had a lot going on before right. that. I think it was Paper Planes was on her second album, I think. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but um, she had a lot going on aside from that. And then all that did was that ad just put it into the massive, you know... Consciousness. Consciousness, exactly. Yeah. And same thing with, like, when Phoenix did that um, Cadillac ad, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they were five albums deep at that point, and the record had been out six months. But it was that, they weren't playing Madison Square Gardens before they did that um, Cadillac ad. And maybe they would have ended up doing that, but I feel like it can, ads do that little push, which puts them over the top. Again, looking at then versus now, 10, 15, 20 years ago, music was 
very confined to certain spaces, arenas, kind of like, you know, you had your CDs, you had your radio, your concerts, and there was a few other places, but that's kind of where music lived. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you have your smartphone, you, you carry the entirety of, like, the commercially available music in Spotify in your pocket. Music has never been more ubiquitous, but it's, like, I feel like the business has never been more challenging for artists. Why is there, do you think, that disparity, you know? I, I don't know. It's it's a weird thing because it's a, it's. Uh, I feel like music has, in a lot of ways, been like hugely. I've said this before. Kind of been psychically devalued to people, mm -hmm. you know, because it is so accessible. Like when I when, so I was grew up in Canada, and for a while I was living on the West Coast, and I was living in this town called Kelowna, British Columbia, that was three hours in from Vancouver, right? And so I remember we would drive three hours to Vancouver to go to Scratch Records on the off chance that it might carry that record that I had read about in, in The Enemy or had heard about, you know? And then half the time, it, well, more than half the time, three quarters of the time, it wouldn't be there, <laughs> right? So if you would have told me that there was going to be a time in the future where on a thing in my, well, first of all, a phone in my pocket would have blown my mind, but <laughs> a thing in my pocket would have had access to basically all the music in the world. I would have literally let you take in my finger and been like, get me there. I'll make that trade to, yeah. 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 Um, but that, you know, it's just a supply and demand thing, you know, and it's like with record, you know, it's recording technologies become cheaper. And so a lot more people are making records and, um, you know, it's just, I think it's just kind of basic economics, but, um, there is this thing where people don't, well, fans of music, I think, feel like, or can sometimes feel like music isn't worth as much as it used to be in the dollars and cents mm -hmm. kind of way, but I feel like emotionally, everybody knows how valuable music is, right? And brands really know that. Because it's really funny that in this day and age that it used to be, oh, the big bad corporations. But I feel like brands are the only people who are paying artists fairly for their work at this point. And a brand is happy to do that because they understand how powerful music actually is. And what it's if, worth. And you're yeah. trying to connect emotionally to someone. There's, I mean, there's the science behind it. It's, there's an emotional connection that goes beyond the rational with music. Right. And, and brands recognize that. And it, it's, music's always going to be valuable for brands. And, and people know it's valuable, too. It's just at a weird time with um, all this technology and supply and demand, I think, where it's those old channels of paying for music like we used to just turn around i mean even you know digitally like the only records i really find myself paying for from itunes are the ones that aren't in spotify if an artist that i'm really passionate about releases a really nice deluxe physical edition i'll still purchase that but in terms of you know paying for a download versus just listening in spotify i really only do that when an artist takes a stand like oh well, i'm not going to be in spotify yeah like, oh, if i want to listen to this well artist. i mean but and, and i get it it's like yeah it's like Spotify, you know, you don't listen to it on Spotify. You should go buy it. But I mean, come on, man. It's like, that's a fucked business model. If it's charity, like, please buy my, even though right. you don't have to, please, like, throw me 20 bucks or 10 bucks. Like, I, I don't know what to, I don't, I'm not saying it's right, but that's like. Is it, has it kind of become like a panhandling kind of model almost? I don't know. I, you know, I, I still buy lots of records. I, mm -hmm. I get like literally every record for free, and I still find myself buying records. But I don't know that that instinct is the same for somebody who didn't come up buying records. Like, right. And I think I'm in between. Like, uh, you know, again, like uh, Perfect Circle. Uh, I'm a huge Tool fan, and Perfect Circle just put out a very, or it hasn't even been released, but they just put on sale a very limited edition, 
three, four, five disc box set with all these bells and whistles, and I paid $150 for it. And I was like, this is probably the only time I'll spend money on a record or, you know, series of records this month, but, you know, I have an emotional connection to the artist and I'm going to buy this nice physical product. That's what I find myself still drawn to, is like, if you can give me a nice physical kind of item that I can't really get everywhere, I'm still interested in that. But then paying nine bucks on iTunes, I just never do it anymore. Yeah, I, I do that. I, you know, I'll, I'll buy stuff on iTunes and um, I buy a lot of wax still just because I like records and I like yeah. to go home and put on a record and I always buy my friends' records. And... Well, and yeah, and I think it is generational because it is an experience to have that listening experience versus just, you know, ha- having something playing on your laptop while you play Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I like that kind of ded- dedicated time. And I think it's something that people don't, like the average consumer just doesn't. There's still, I think this is part of the reason why people don't take the issue seriously. In people's heads, rock stars are still oh yeah, rock stars and making all this money. And, and that's like in the grand scheme of musicians releasing records, even musicians releasing records on major labels, it's like nobody, nobody's rich from music anymore. But in people's heads... There's still that. They're rock stars. They have everything. Why do you need my money, Dave Grohl? No, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I mean, I think it was, what was it, the Forbes list last year of like the highest paid Mm -hmm. hip hop artist, or highest paid artist in the world, I believe, or in the country for 2012. Dr. Dre was number one because of Beats, who hasn't released a new record in over a decade. And it's like, what a terrible moral to take away from that. Like, the most successful, profitable musician is the one not doing music. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know what the yeah what the message is from that. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to take away from that. But um, you know, I you know I came up in in punk rock and in kind of doing it yourself and for the love of the game or whatever you want to call it. And I think that there's still the people who are still passionate about making music are going to find a way to make music. But you know, I don't think that they have to just accept blindly that they're not going to make any money from it. You know. Well, let's talk about something you brought up um, when you were describing your role with Leo Burnett and just kind of the newer model of music licensing. Because you were talking about not only can you approach an artist like, say, an Arcade Fire or a Passion Pit or, or, you know, Lord or, or somebody, you know, who has their own established music that they've created separate from an ad, but there's also now a business for talented musicians who maybe even are in normal, you know, quote unquote normal, like full time artist projects, but then they also go in and record separately, you know, music that's not for their group. It's just for a Nissan ad or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So there's music houses, right? So there's, um, um, and music dealers does this as well. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's hundreds of music houses around the country where, and, and that's still the bulk of music that gets used in advertising, comes through a music house. It's composed specifically for the project that, that you want. So you'll say, hey, we got this Nintendo ad, we're looking for a piece of music that, you know, sounds a little bit 8-bit, has to, when the character jumps here, it has to do a big swell, and then on the end logo, it, it does this. So you need something crafted specifically for that 30-second or 60-second spot, and that's still the bulk of, like I said, what, what gets used. And um, so a lot of people that, there are a lot of people who play in really great bands that um, compose for music houses, and, and that's a... That's a new kind of revenue stream for, for people. And I, I think they used to be called jingle houses or whatever, and people used to kind of look down their nose at it. But, man, some of the most talented musicians I know are you know, kind of music house guys. You know, for anyone watching this or listening later or watching later, you know, 
if they're a musician going like, I didn't even know about this, I would totally be willing to go and, and play for music dealers for, for Leo Burnett, for any of these houses, you know, like, and, and contribute my talents as a guitar player or a drummer if it'll end up in an ad and make me some money. How do you break into that as an artist? Like, what's, what's the way into that kind of model? Uh, composing for a music house? Well, yeah. that's, I mean, that's, you just have to, it's just, they're not tough to track down. There's loads in L.A., there's a few in Chicago, and there's loads in New York, there's a few in Minneapolis, and then around the world, London, I know there are a lot, um, Amsterdam, Germany. But that, then you're just, you need, to, you need to impress the people who own the music house, you know. And it's a skill. It's not, it's not something that everybody can do, because I have artists try to compose for 30-second spots all the time, and I think the perception is, oh, yeah, yeah, I can just knock this out and, and go. In an afternoon, yeah. But it's, it's a very specific skill, you know. It's, it's, it's making some drama and action happen within 30 seconds is not something that comes without a bit of practice. So, um, Yeah, I would, I would say if you're looking to kind of break into that racket, it's, it's find, find the good music houses in kind of your area and prove your talents to them, do some demos for them. Along the same lines, kind of bigger picture, what... What can artists do these days to help themselves? You know, and, and we're, we're talking about some of it, the music licensing, the music houses, but, but, you know, for a younger artist who maybe doesn't know the game as well, what's their best bet or what are some, some good bets for them that are going to help their career? I know it's a kind of... Yeah, yeah, no, question. it is, it is. I mean, make really great music. I mean, that's the same, it's funny, it's because it's the same stuff that used to get you... Uh, record sales now will get you sync deals, right? So if I'm like reading the Chicago Reader or whatever on the train on the way in, and I go, man, this is like the third time I've seen this band headlining the Empty Bottle. Who are they? Right. Right. Or what's this article in, you know, on whatever blog? And before you used to kind of get those things to to get record sales, and you still do that, but it also has an effect on people like me, who are kind of gatekeepers to. To different revenue streams, right? But I mean, I think the main thing is just be in it because you love making music. Otherwise, it's there's you know you got to be in it for that. If you're in it to just make a buck, I mean, seriously, there are so many better ways to make money be a that lawyer. are so much easier. Yeah, yeah, like so much easier. Because I think a lot of the glamour that people might associate with, like you were talking about, just like the rock star lifestyle. Like when I hear people and they're like, I want to party like a rock star, I'm like, so you want to be worried about whether you're going to get paid for your music or not? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It doesn't mean what you think it means, you know? Yeah. Crafting a campaign, you know, when you are working in, you know, with a, with a brand or, you know, a project and you're looking for that music, you know, and you, and you find it, like, how do you make sure that the, on all sides that it feels authentic, that it feels authentic for the brand, for the, you know, for the client, and for the artist to make sure that their music's not going to be used in a way that kind of is disingenuous to the spirit of what they do. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's, there's really basic stuff where it's, you know, you need to get, on a business end, you need to get everybody's approval to do stuff. I, you know, you have to kind of do like a little gut check, you know. I, I, I just think it's, those are the you know when it feels right and you know when it feels wrong and um, you kind of you have to go with that. You don't want to force anybody to do something they, they don't want to do because in the end it's just going to make, you know, you want the, you want the artist and the band and, and the brand, everybody to be excited about all of it because then everybody feeds off each other and then everybody can kind of push it out and get it more exposure. You don't have to name names or anything like that, but have you had any projects where a band signed on to something, and then at the 11th hour, they get cold feet, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in a Gatorade commercial. 
you know, and you've already kind of like moved everything forward. No, that's never happened. Really? Uh, no, yeah, it has happened. Of course it has. Yeah. Yeah. I was and gonna say, like, yeah, wow. yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's not a good time, but you just kind of deal with each of those on, like, you know, just like anything, like a normal human deals with any problem. You sure. just go, okay, what are your actual concerns? How can we make you feel better about them? Is there something that we can, that we can change, that we're willing to change that'll make you feel better? Um, and we and we and we really try to to get there, you know. And, and I think anything that you see on the air, it's everybody's happy with it. In yeah. The end. You know, you don't you don't try to force people in it. But yeah, that's not fun when that happens. It's happened a few times. But that's you know, it's a lot. I get it. I mean, you're 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 an artist, and if it's maybe if it's like the first time that you've licensed something, you know, these songs. I know how long people work on songs and how close they are to their heart and. Yeah, it's, I think it's like a cold feet thing more than anything, and it's you just try to cool everything. It's gonna be fine, and yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about a very recent fresh campaign that you were involved in, very instrumental in. You placed the song "Royals" by Lord in a new Samsung spot, correct? Yeah. Walk us through something like that. Like, let's use that as a case study. Like, what's the what's the first step, and and how does it go from there to where the ad is on YouTube and on the air? Yeah, um, so that one started as, as as they usually do. It's a pretty pretty good example of the the kind of framework for how things like this work. Um, you know, the creative team came to me and the producer came to me and they had just boards. They hadn't shot the commercial yet, and uh, we call them boards. It's like the little storyboards for how the commercial is going to play out. And um, they're like, we're looking for a song for this thing. We think we want it to be this kind of musical kind of feel, and. Um, you know, what do you think? We think that we, you know, that, that we're, we're going to want to use like an old show tune or something because we want this to feel like a musical. So I look at that, I go, okay, cool. So we want to find an old, an old show tune, old musical. So we go searching it. And the way that we search is we search through our iTunes library and, and th- songs that we know. Um, and when I say we, I mean my, my team, which is uh, Chris Clark and Alex Stern, who both work with me. And, um, but then we also go out to publishers and labels, and we're like, hey, we're looking for an old show tune about people overcoming something, for example, because we want a song about people overcoming hardship or coming up from nothing kind of thing. And um, so we went out there, and, and, and then I would get, like, 100 submissions back. I'd quell those down to, like, my favorite 20 or 30, send them on to the creative team. they say, yeah, maybe this one, maybe this one, but can we get a bit more? Let's focus on this thing. And, um, and so we go back and forth like that, back and forth, and it just the perfect song just wasn't kind of jumping out, and um, it was getting a couple days close to shooting. And always in advertising, probably anything in show business, it always comes down to like the wire because people will like to reassess their choices and tweak them right till till they literally can't anymore. And then I just felt like we weren't quite there yet. And this, this was a rare one. Because usually out of that process, you'll find something and be like, okay, we're going to do that. But that was one where I was like, in my office, I was like, what's the song? Think really hard. And I just went like, <laughs> like I just thought that I was like, oh, Royals, that's perfect. Like that's, and I'm like, it's not an old show tune, but that's the exact kind of sentence. Total triumphant overcoming. Coming up, yeah, coming yeah. up from, from, from below. So that was one where it was like right away I texted Alec. I was like, it's got to be Royals by Lord. And then we, you know, we emailed, you know, e- you know, emailed the label and, and, and the publisher and began the conversations. And they signed off on it. And then we went and shot the spot, came back, got the final approvals, and 
off we went. But that was a, a you know, it's a long process because then you shoot and then you edit and. I mean, and I, I watched that when I was, you know, preparing for this for this discussion. It's a really cool spot. And I'm not saying that because you're sitting here, but it's like, it's very effective. It, it really, like, delivers kind of the message that I think, you know, you guys were going for. And I think that was really the right song for that. Well, you know, it's the creative team, man. But I'm, I'm glad you like the song on it, too. It's cool. And I, th- I mean, that record is just blowing my, my hair back right yeah, now. Yeah, it's good. You know, when you do something like this, do you hear from the artists themselves? Does Lord or anyone ever shoot you a personal email and it's like, hey, you know what? Thank you for putting my song out there like that. I really love how the way it's represented with this. Um, you know, I, in, in general, you don't usually, in the music business, it's usually a little bit, people have, like, the people who handle their business. And right. then they're, and that's good, because you do need, you know, you need to have someone play bad cop. And, um... Um, yeah, I didn't hear I didn't hear anything directly from Lord, but um, yeah, her team and everybody heard from and got yeah. to sign off. And I'm trying to think. Sometimes though, sometimes you know, I usually it's it's interesting when you meet like you know, I met with Santa Gold before mm-hmm. years ago I, when I was at DDB. We did this thing where for Bud Light Lime, and we had Santa Gold come on. It kind of like launched her onto the into the public consciousness. And uh, before she agreed to do that, we actually met at South by Southwest, and we had dinner and just. Some mutual friends introduced us, and it was just like, okay, cool, we're on the same wavelength. She's like, okay, cool, let's do this. So it's good. It's good to, and, and Glenn Kochi's a friend of mine. Um, we did that Delta spot where he's playing all the faucets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I talk to him all the time, anyways. But let's talk about kind of the focus for artists because for the podcast, for Dynasty Podcast, and even before that, um, booking local 101 for 10 years, it's like I talk to a lot of artists, mm-hmm. a lot of Chicago artists, and I've talked to a lot who they don't really know necessarily where they should focus their energies. They don't know if they're supposed to be playing 30 shows a month or if they're spending every single minute on Twitter or like, you know, like they don't necessarily know where to aim. They're kind of shooting in the dark sometimes. So like, you know, as somebody who has so much kind of oversight of all these kind of things, where do you think artists should be pulling their resources? You know, is it all social media? Is it only playing live? Like what is the kind of breakdown um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's, I do, I feel like I do have a view just cause I'm looking at so many different genres of music, you know, all day long and kind of surveying the landscape. I don't know. It's tough. I mean, this, the short answer is making a really great record and making really great music, but you got to do something with your business. So how are you going to focus your business? Um, it's, I see some artists, um, I, I met with a young woman named Megan Nicole just a few hours ago who has, like, an enormous amount of YouTube followers. Mm-hmm. Like, create millions. I think she has 2.5 million um, subscribers to her YouTube channel. And that's, yeah, that's something that's... And um, that's something that, like, Lindsey Sterling, for example, the dubstep violinist, again, gazillion um, YouTube followers, and Troy Carter, who manages Lady Gaga, picked her up as a management client. So having a crazy amount of social media can be its own kind of springboard for your music career. Yeah. I don't know, though. I, I don't see the connection between necessarily being the, the, the great artists that I've met and great artists that I've played with. A lot of them, I'm like, I don't see them being really great at social media. But that doesn't mean their music isn't good and their music shouldn't be heard, you know? Right. I think it's like, just play to your strengths, you know? It's like, it's like what you always did in the music business. It's like, play to your strengths. If you're like just a fucking outrageously great songwriter, then just make the focus that and make it like all your publicity should be about what a great songwriter you are. 
if you're okay, go make it about the videos. Right. If you you're, know? you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, yeah. And, or, you know, there's been plenty of bands who made it about their look or their live show. You know, it's just play to your strengths. I guess like anything in life, you know? Yeah. Um, let's talk about something you brought up earlier as well, which is the artists in residence series at Leo Burnett. Mm -hmm. Kind of talk about what that is and, and what's the, what's the focus or the end goal of kind of that initiative? Yeah, I think it's just to, it's kind of twofold. It's, it's to get artists in that can play in front of myself and then the whole agency, right? Because a lot of times people will just come to me with an artist and go like creative directors and stuff and be like, we want to we wanna license this band's song. And then I just go and cut the deal. Conversely, I can't get anybody to license anything unless the creative directors are like, yeah, I love it. They're, they're the decision makers. So it gets, it gets those people in bands that we think would be really great for our clients. It gets them in front of those creative directors, gets them familiar, maybe gets them a personal connection with those people and, and helps get their music placed. And then, you know, you work crazy hours in advertising. A lot of our, our guys are like in that office a long time where they're out on shoots and they don't get out to shows as much as they want. Uh, and we do more than just bands. We'll have writers and, you know, we had a sex therapist in once, you know, just different cultural people into the, into the agency. And it, it exposes them those guys who are cooped up in ad world to the outside world, you know, yeah. and make sure that they're, that they're relevant. But I guess the end goal is to expose artists to people who could license their music, yeah. Well, you know, along those same lines then, again, like, you know, for an artist listening at home or watching this later or even in the room, like, if they've got this music that's great and they really know that it could make an impression or, or they want you to hear it because their dream is to end up in a Nike ad or a, in a Gatorade ad, what's the best way for them to get their music to you, to Leo Burnett, you know, in front of the decision makers for this kind of process? Uh, my short answer for this stuff is just, you can email me. It's gabe.mcdonough.leoburnett.com. So yeah, I mean, feel free to send me like a link to your music. But in general, like I said, those old things, like get some press, get some blog buzz, like do all those same old things. If you're doing all those things, then you'll, you'll get my attention. Yeah. Like, like, you know, you don't have to blow up like Lord, but you know, that got my attention because it was you know, we, we decided on the tune like a couple months ago, but it was obviously a happening thing and it was a thing that was going to blow up. And same thing with like Santa Gold way back when she was on the cover of the fader. It was so all those old things that you used to do, those will get the attention of people like me too. Or you can, you can go the route of maybe you get a publisher and that publisher has some clout and you get a big publisher and then they pitch your songs in with a bunch of known songs that, that people might be asking for. And or you get an indie pitching company that can kind of represent your songs and, and pitch them, pitches a bunch of different indie songs at the same time. So I think strength in numbers and um, kind of doing all those same things. Yeah. yeah. So I know we've been talking for a little bit and that we've got an audience here at the music dealer's offices here in Chicago. So Layla, my producer, has a mic. If anyone in here would like to ask a question to Gabe um, and be part of the podcast, part of the video, Feel free to just come up. We've got the mic for you. All right. And say your name. Hi there, Dan Dicker. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you said before about how artists that become established, they may also consequently say that they're not interested in how they appear to advertisers or that's no longer their focus. So something that, like that make this music licensing really a young artist game, that this is really for up-and-comers where... Well, you know, I you know I use the example of of uh, 
of Kanye seeming to kind of go off and just being like, I'm doing my own thing. I'm putting all my chips in one basket. Or, or another artist like Riff Raff, right? So, you know, he's, there's, he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff on YouTube that no brand would want to be associated with. But he's going all in on his own brand, right? So that's, I, you know, kudos to him. But no, I don't think it, it's not a young artist game because there's still legacy artists. Like, you're hearing a ton of Who songs on commercials now. I, I think it's a way that legacy artists as well see a way to just kind of stay, you know, just so they don't become like these people that you know they're legends, but you don't know their songs. It's a way to just kind of stay in people's, in people's minds. Yeah. yeah. Um, who else? If anyone else has a question. Okay. Hey, I'm Danny. Hello again. How's it going, Danny? Not too bad. Um, I'm just curious, with Leo Burnett, you talked a little bit about like some major placements and then some indie placements. Can you talk about two things when it, when it comes to indie placements? As an advertiser, what is the type of thing that comes on your plate where you say, okay, this is specifically for an indie band? That's my first part of my question. And the second thing is, what does that look like in terms of the lifespan of that commercial and the payout? Yeah, the well, it's, it's really, so it's, it's usually the thing that you know, not to be crass, the thing that says we need a small band for this, where is is the money, right? Where you're, you're like, okay, we have a small budget for this, but we want to license some music, some existing music. So that means you can't license something from Universal and EMI and all that stuff. And then, and then we start our indie search. Not that we exclude smaller bands from our bigger searches, right? Because we're just looking to find the right song. So you're still in those big ones, but then the kind of big boys get, pit, get kind of pushed out if you're looking at a certain price point. The lifespan of commercials, that's not determined by that's a life of its own. Some commercials have a media buy that runs for a year, some's only for a few weeks, and that's just kind of has a life of its own, yeah. Gabe Brandon Hammer here. You've had kind of an interesting ride starting with Empty Bottle and then DDB and now where you are with Leo Burnett. It's not exactly what one would consider the regular s scope of getting to where you are with your position currently. For individuals that are looking to work their way up in your field, what suggestions do you have for them? Obviously, your love for music was your drive. You know, you knocking on the boss, door who had an interest, but what advisement do you have for them? Well, I, you know, it's tough to, it's, there's probably not like a really silver bullet kind of solution for it, but my experience was I got into the advertising business, I earned people's trust, I kept doing stuff in music outside, and then when the opportunity ar arose, I was ready to, to jump on it. And um, that has also proven true for Chris Clark, who works for me. He got into, he was always a music guy, needed a job, got into advertising, was an account guy for a few years. And then when I started working there, I got to know him and he had carved out this little music program on a brand that he was working on. It's like, wow, there's a great taste of music there. All the deals are really tight and well negotiated. Who's doing that? And then we started talking. And then one day I was like, you're a music guy, aren't you? Would you want to come work down here? Blink twice. And he was just kind of like, yeah, get me down here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I brought him down. So I think, I guess, from my, in my experience, it's get in in any way you possibly can and then wiggle your way into the, into the music position. It's rare that jobs like mine aren't posted. Like if a, if a job like mine opens up as, at, an agent, at a different agency, they'll probably call me 
So, hey, you want this job? It's like they just, all the music supervisors kind of circle around. That said, we have an internship program, and um, Alex Stern was an intern of ours this summer, and he's a freelance music producer with us now. So, Hi, I'm Jess. Hey, um, thank you for being here. So I've, um, I've done jingles, or I guess it would be more mm -hmm. music house stuff. I've been, I'm a jingle singer. I work yeah. with Sonic Sphere. I've worked mm -hmm. with Ira, which yeah, yeah. I know Ira yeah. came from you guys, yeah. um, which did a demo for that Sweet Dreams spot, which was fun. But right uh, I'm just wondering, I, I guess I know it's, it's one thing for bands to come in and say, you know, we want to write for you. But what about a singer who's looking to offer their talents for something like that to different music houses, like networking that? Um, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't come to me. To, I mean, you could come to me to do that, but probably the, your best way to get hired is to go to music houses and and kind of let your talents be known. I mean, the same way you got in with with the other people. I think that I think they're always music houses are always looking to like have their increase their list of people that they can call to compose, and and they'll kind of assess what kind of a singer you are, file it away, and then when the right project comes up, have you demo on it in general. Show up or call or send an email. Yeah, in general, I've just found, I've found people really just in everything in life. If you just kind of send a email, reasonable human to reasonable human, everybody's been good, you know, about that with me and in my career. So, any other questions? All right, we got one more. How are you? I'm Marcus East. I'm a songwriter and a singer. Uh, my question is, how difficult of a process is it? for you or others who are in charge of placements to collectively come together to pick that perfect song that gives life to a product. Really hard. Really, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's just so many decision makers. So there's, you know, I might get 100 song submissions and my, myself and my team might call it down to like 30 songs that we pass on to the creative team. And then they might go, no, we don't like any of them. So we go back to the drawing board, give them another 30. No, we don't like uh, 30. Oh, yeah, we like this one. Then they put it up to their, the boss immediately above them who goes, no, nah, I don't like it, and starts again. And, and then there's a couple bosses above that on our end, on the agency end, and then we take to the client. Oh, we don't like it, back to the start. It's really hard. It's like lightning striking. One more um, quick question. Yeah. Once they hire your company, uh, how long is the deadline for them to actually say yes to your proposal for the songwriter before they go to someone else? Well, so we're, so we're an ad agency, so we already work for the brand, you know, creating all the visuals and stuff like that um, ahead of it. But the kind of timelines that, that we work on, they're usually pretty tight. I mean, it's like if we call a music house, for example, it's usually, hey, we need a song that kind of does X, Y, and Z, and we're going to need like five to ten demos. What's to Thursday? Yeah, you'd probably get till Monday in this case, but usually it's it's you don't get that weekend in there. It's usually two or three days. We'll want five or ten kind of versions back. All right. I think that's everybody who is looking to ask a question in here. Cool. I really want to thank Gabe McDonough for being here with us tonight for the first ever industry sessions here at Music Dealers headquarters in Chicago. Let's give it up for him. Um, I want to thank music dealers and everyone on the staff here for having us in here tonight for this first event. Uh, Eric Scheinkoff, John Williamson, Rob Lindquist, Cody Shepherds, everybody here who made that possible. Um, thanks to Dynasty Podcast producer Layla Royale for running all the digital on this tonight, making all of this happen. We wouldn't be hearing or listening to this without her. And uh, most of all, thank you to everybody here tonight who showed up, who came out, who watched it online, who's finding this later down the line. Anyone who's interacting with the event, 
Thank you so much uh, for Dynasty Podcast. My name is Haima Black. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. This has been Industry Sessions. Thanks to Gabe McDonough for being on the premiere episode and live event. Thanks to Music Dealers for hosting Industry Sessions and Layla Iroyal of Dynasty Podcasts for producing the live event and digital media. You can find more Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcasts.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Haima Black, Dynasty Descend.